This particular experiment is also of great interest to professional scientists looking for solutions to the world's energy crisis. The jar is collecting bubbles of hydrogen. The collected hydrogen can be combined again with oxygen to produce water and a vast amount of energy. Welcome back to the Corporal's Almanac. My name is Andy. And I'm Elliot. And I'm Matt. If you couldn't tell from the Vox ripoff at the start that we're doing something a little different this episode. This is the first episode in our new Brief History of miniseries, with a brief history of hydrogen power. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, it's no secret that we're somewhat skeptical of high-tech solutions to the fucked up situation we're in today. Well, we're going to be talking about technology today, but I want to emphasize at the beginning here that while this technology might be a step in the right direction, it can only ever be a small piece of the puzzle that's required in order to realize a democratic and sustainable future. And obviously, since we're talking about technology, I'm not going to be the one talking about it. So we bribed Matt, and now I get to sit back and listen. Yeah, bribed not nearly enough. Listen, you knew what you signed up for. (laughs) We're going to also be talking about climate change this episode, and how it might shape the future energy and political landscape. Climate change is change, and we must do everything in our power to halt and reverse the best we can the devastation that capitalism and industry has brought to the planet. However, it's also part of the future we inherit, and we'll make predictions in this episode about how we're going to live with it. So, let's get into it. Hydrogen power. Yeah, hydrogen power. Woo! First of all, high-tech is a bit of a misnomer. Scientists and inventors have been working on hydrogen power for like the last 200 years, and it's made some good strides in that time. The first working hydrogen fuel cell was built in 1842, and in 1959 it was powering tractors. By 1965, a fuel cell was launched into low Earth orbit aboard Gemini 3. Okay, so I know you said we've been working on these for a long time and they're not super high-tech like the sci-fi stuff I always see where they're like, we need fuel cells, but what actually is a fuel cell? Like, what is it? Is it, it's different than a battery? Yeah. So to explain that, let's talk about water. All right. So if we're going to talk about water, when I think about like fuel cells being the Luddite that I am, all I can think of is like setting up like solar panels and then like tying a bunch of buckets to ropes and like running them up a hill like a ski like a whatever they're called the ski lifter thingies and like just sitting them out there like holding all that water and then as you need the energy like releasing the tension or whatever so that they start dropping and you can harvest energy like that that's basically as high tech as i want to go yeah that's kinetic energy andy this is more of a chemical reaction i'm guessing yeah closer to a battery We're definitely going to be pushing those Luddite barriers of yours. I did not sign up for this. I mean, you know what? Let's go back. We're not doing this episode. No, okay. I'll turn off the Zoom. So let's talk about hydrolysis. Okay, we're going back to water. So I know this one. Hydro means water and lice means to split or separate. So we're splitting water. The two H's and the O. Yeah, exactly. 
So water splits into hydrogen and oxygen. And this splitting requires energy. Most specifically, you need about 230 kilojoules to split 18 grams of water. You probably did this in high school chemistry with like a beaker of water, a battery, and some wire. Here's where the fuel cell comes in. You can get that energy back, or well, most of that energy back, by recombining the hydrogen with oxygen in a fuel cell. So doesn't that like explode? No. You can get energy from hydrogen through direct combustion, like an internal combustion engine. But a fuel cell has an electrolyte and works a bit differently. It makes for much more of a controlled reaction. All I can hear when you're talking about like electrolytes is like Gatorade cars. I mean, it's what plants crave. Andy, you're confusing the one movie you've seen, I guess, out of three, and also your lack of- I saw all three Robocops. And Idiocracy is the one you just referenced. And Idiocracy. Like, look, I, I am basically the definition of cosmopolitan. Come on. True, yeah. It replaced all of your science classes from public school is what it did. <laughs> I, I am, yeah, I, I am a good example of why public schools are a failure. I'm sorry, everyone. Anyway, so Gatorade cars, electrolytes. So the cool part about this comes when hydrogen technology is combined with renewable electricity generation. In 1923, scientist and socialist J.S.B. Haldane laid out a vision for our hydrogen-powered future. Just I just want to cut you off right there. Like, people with three initials before their last name, that's like something we should definitely do more of. It's very aristocratic. Yeah, but I want to have like A.S.S. and then my last <laughs> name. <laughs> like, oh we could God. do that, right? We have the technology. So what would your two S. Mill names be? Shortstop. <laughs> he's never he's never played baseball before in his life. <laughs> you know, I never make fun of you. I'm just saying. Like I'm short and I stop doing things. So technically, yes, that that fits my character. But Nailed it. I could come up with something better. Like give me like an hour. Maybe by the end of this episode I'll have something for you. All right. So what what did this guy do? <laughs> JSB Haldane. Uh he laid out a vision for a hydrogen powered future way back in nineteen twenty three. He was, like, a really interesting guy. Did so much, like, research over such, like, a vast field. In 1915, he published a paper on genetic linkage while in a frontline trench in France. You know, the thing people typically do when they're in a frontline trench in France. So yeah. So, I'm not seeing the big deal. Imagine that being your comfort activity is studying genetic <laughs> linkage. Anyway, so in 1923, Haldane was writing about how Britain's energy requirements would be met in the future. So I'm going to quote him here. Rows of metallic windmills working electric motors, where during windy weather, the surplus power will be used for the electrolytic decomposition of water into oxygen and hydrogen. Okay, so this seems cool, but what's the point of it? It seems like it's an unnecessary step if we want more renewable energy and less fossil fuels. Yeah, that's a good question. So to answer that, let's talk about ducks. So do you want to talk about like pecans or cayugas, like... What ducks in specific, like specifically? No, you wish. I, I always wish. This guy's a quack. <laughs> uh, we're actually talking about the duck problem. The duck problem involves the difference in community electricity needs over the course of the day versus the time when solar power is available. It's kind of hard to illustrate in an audio format, so if you have a second, look up a picture. The short version is basically, while solar generation peaks midday, our energy consumption peaks in the evenings. 
What this results in is a huge increase in demand on power plants over just a few short hours. These power plants are huge and not designed for this sort of agility. So that kind of reminds me of like a greenhouse. Like you've got this greenhouse and it's great, especially in like the periphery of the season changes where it can help warm up, you know, in the middle of winter and things like that. But you get into these weird spaces where it's like they'll heat up to 90 degrees in the middle of the day. They can't retain that heat. And by winter, there are only maybe five or six degrees warmer than like the outside air temperature. So it's not really benefiting you as much as you might originally think. Yeah, that's like exactly the same sort of like problem. Because like the grid authority can risk underproducing electricity, which is like what results in brownouts. A certain number of power plants need to be running at all times to meet this jump in demand. In the middle of the day, if the supply of energy from solar panels and the power plants outpaces demand, there's a risk of overgeneration, and some of this solar energy goes to waste. These solar panels literally end up being turned off in the middle of the day while power plants keep burning. Okay, so because we use energy on demand and we need it, we're used to having it right when you come on, right when you turn on the switch. This is different than a battery because it's not just storing that power. A fuel cell can, how, how does a fuel cell integrate into this so that it's an alternate form of energy the way that we're used to having it? Well, a fuel cell and like broadly like a hydrogen power system kind of can provide like one answer to this problem. So as a country, the US is far from dependent on solar power alone. But this problem is representative of some factors that can make some sources of renewable electricity somewhat unreliable. What happens if, say, wildfire smoke holds solar generation in the middle of the summer? Or fall or winter or spring or the whole year. Ooh, or a volcanic winter. Nuclear winter so overrated. <laughs> right. Or like, what if a hurricane stops wind generation off the northeast coast? How long could New York or Boston go without power? Or what if hydro dams run dry in the middle of increasingly hot summers? You know, I don't want to tell you how to live your life, but you might have been listening to this podcast for like a little bit too long. I was an optimist before you. I found you guys. Yeah, you weren't worried about anything. You thought Elon Musk was going to save us. <laughs> I'm still waiting on that <laughs> chip. Oh, man, you're going to look so good with that chip. That classic doomer shit's creeping in. Exactly. But anyway, some of these things need to be considered, not the chips, but the energy disruptions need to be considered when designing your energy systems. You're about to drop a Bitcoin commercial, aren't you? Don't lie. Yeah. Okay. I have new, newly minted currency. It's Musk coin? change everything. So unfortunately or fortunately, what fossil fuels are really good at is being energy dense, easily transportable and ready rain or shine. So the question is really not how we generate enough renewable energy, but how we can store it. Okay, so I've got you. That's where hydrogen comes in, right? That's what this episode's about. So you can store energy when it's abundant and then use it when you need it. That's the on-demand part of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. This energy storage problem isn't a new one, and hydrogen is just one solution to it. Another that's been explored is home batteries, which are, well, really what they sound like. It's a big energy storage device for your home that when energy supply is low or demand is high, the home can use energy from the battery instead. As plug-in cars become more commonplace, these home batteries are going to become essential to a stable grid. Let's think about the duck problem again. Fucking ducks. It's already a problem that demand surges in the evenings. Now imagine charging a car on top of that. 
or thousands or millions of people plugging in their cars after their evening commutes. This is assuming, of course, that we'll have access to the resources to make all these cars and house batteries. That's what the Musk coin is all about. Come <laughs> Wait, on. Is that a that'll real? Ta- that'll take care of it. Is it real? No. I, I mean, it will be, obviously, because America. But at this point, it has not come out to exist. Although maybe if we hashtag Musk coin at him enough, he'll just do it because the internet told him to and he just wants to be loved. Every day we stray further from God's light. <laughs> or closer, I'm not sure. I mean, if we're trying to die, doesn't that technically mean we're trying to get closer? I just want to go where I can blend in. Bro, it's called the dark. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, oh, anyways. Yeah, so some of these resources that you'll need to make electric car batteries and house batteries, they may not be around so much in the future. And we're going to touch on this later. But, you know, if you need lithium so much that you need to steal it from somebody else, maybe you shouldn't have that lithium. Looking at you, South America. Wait, I thought we were talking about hydrogen power. Doesn't doesn't that mean hydrogen cars? Well, hydrogen power has huge potential. But in terms of cars, the future is probably in batteries. Back in the early 2000s, hydrogen cars were the big new thing. We're going to play a clip here from the 2003 State of the Union. Environmental progress will come about not through endless lawsuits or command and control regulations, but through technology and innovation. Tonight I'm proposing $1.2 billion in research funding so that America can lead the world in developing clean, hydrogen-powered automobiles. A simple chemical reaction between hydrogen and oxygen generates energy, which can be used to power a car, producing only water, not exhaust fumes. With a new national commitment, our scientists and engineers will overcome obstacles to taking these cars from laboratory to showroom, so that the first car driven by a child born today could be powered by hydrogen and pollution-free. All right, so we all love George Bush, obviously. He's a fantastic painter, and we all really respect him for that. And despite despite all of his, you know, humanity, it's crazy that his energy policies benefited, like, car manufacturers. So, problem with, like, hydrogen-powered cars is that while hydrogen gas is energy-dense by weight, it's not energy-dense by volume. By mass, hydrogen has the energy density three times that of jet fuel, and more than a hundred times that of lithium-ion batteries. However, the reality of this in transportation is high-pressure tanks that are cooled to at least negative 240 degrees Celsius, also known as butt-ass cold. A technical term. Right, to produce a denser liquid hydrogen. Even then, the energy density by volume is about a quarter that of gasoline. (laughs) Fuck you, Kelvin. (laughs) So we know we can't keep using gasoline, so the comparison really is between hydrogen and batteries. Hydrogen gas has to be compressed to 200 bar, almost 3000 psi, to match the volumetric density of a lithium-ion battery. So it has to be under a huge amount of pressure to hold the same energy in the same space as a battery-powered car. So like for me, the lead 8 here, if like a car tire can make air carry a half-ton car with like 40 psi, then we're talking about something that's pressurized by like a hundred times of that, which I guess would theoretically uh, like have a lot of power. Right. And so in personal transportation capacities, it's way more important that your energy is dense, like rather than light. Okay. So this is the part where I'm going to also be a Luddite, Andy. We're Luddites together, bud, forever. (laughs) 
this is where I, I guess most people's fears about these things exploding comes in. Like that sounds like a lot of pressure and I'm picturing this stuff all pressurized and cold on some tracks and it'll blow up like a hundred times the Hindenburg. Like whenever we talk about this kind of stuff, all I can think of is like, can you imagine if the diehard movies had this kind of technology? Like, can you imagine just the budget alone to like show like this little canister going off and like exploding New York City? It would have been fucking amazing. You're looking for H-bombs in movies, bud. Yeah. Basically. Not quite the same power as an H-bomb, um, but... You know, don't don't lie to me, Matt. I want I need this. <laughs> in a beautiful hydrogen powered future, maybe the Die Hard movies will have hydrogen explosions. Die Hard thirty two. Exactly. Die with hydrogen and hydrogen in this. I don't know. <laughs> Listen, I'm working with not great script writing here. You know, we're gonna go on strike. There's a writer strike. No, we're done. I'm really mad because I actually wrote this episode. <laughs> um, it was very it was very backhanded. <laughs> Right, so hydrogen has certainly had some bad press, there's no doubt about that. But a lot of the danger is when it's used in lift capacities, like the Hindenburg, where it can't be pressurized. But when it's compressed in transportation capacity, it's certainly a lot safer than a tank of gasoline strapped to the underside of your car. That's because if the container ruptures, the explosive material dissipates so much quicker. So like, I get to do it again, I get to talk about iRobot, which is like the only other movie other than the four we've talked about that I like have actually seen. So like Will Smith gets on his motorcycle and the girl that he's like saving from robots or whatever. I, I don't really remember the movie, but I do remember her like freaking out. Like, you know, this thing's runs on gas, right? And he's like, uh, yeah, that's what everything ran on. But they're like totally freaked out about it. I mean, yeah, I could see kind of a car being a hand grenade in the right hands. I mean, yeah, we don't have any examples at all of people using cars as weapons to charge it. I'm going to stop this conversation right here. Um, so, <laughs> anyway, so the problem is energy density certainly adds complications to the idea of hydrogen cars. The other problem is the infrastructure. Cars today are a lot more than the vehicle itself. It's also a massive supply network of refueling stations that would need to refit themselves with, at the very least, high pressure holding tanks and hydrogen refueling equipment. This is certainly a much more costly process than setting up residential recharging stations for electric vehicles. As we'll see later, hydrogen power is much more suitable for heavy lift applications. Buses, trucks, and ships, where more can be invested in costly equipment and spaces at less of a premium. All right, so are you going to do the thing that I always do in episodes where I say, we'll see later, and then no one ever remembers whether or not you cover it? Yeah, I'm just going to skip over this stuff. Uh, You're just no. going to keep saying, we'll see later, and then no one ever questions it because later they've forgotten. We're going to talk about it, you see. We have all the answers later. Later. Just keep listening. Just dangle that carrot. <laughs> the other complication is that hydrogen has a bit of an efficiency problem. Hydrogen is an energy carrier, and with each transformation back and forth, you lose some of this energy. In fact, once energy penalties are taken into account, you lose roughly 50% of the energy that went into it. Now, if you produce way more renewable power than you need, this isn't really a problem. But if it's getting used again, quickly, not that far away, it makes way more sense to just transmit the energy. You should keep in mind, however, that as the technology develops, the efficiency is undoubtedly going to improve. A little later, we're going to see where using hydrogen power makes sense and how that might work. Add. When you fly, fly with us. Enjoy our panoramic windows, fresh fish, and nonstop flights to Ireland. 
United Bear Lines, where everywhere bears care, we fare with flair. Find out more at poorpearls.com. Anyways, so let's talk about the ways hydrogen is commercially produced today. We get out your color wheel, everyone. Do we need one of those? Oh, what's it called? The little palette board that they mix the colors primary on? and secondary colors? I don't know how to mix colors at all. I, I didn't learn that in uh, elementary school and public school. I'm pretty sure the way you learn is by having kids and then they have to learn it. So then you relearn it as an adult. And you're like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Because like at six, you never remember that shit. I'm terrible <laughs> at mixing colors. Right. My brother, so- won't, my brother won't ask for my help for painting anymore. Which is great, I guess. I'm, it's fine. I'm colorblind. It's like a whole family thing. Like, you know, That's you right. guys, <laughs> when we were in high school, Ellie used to make fun of my cousin all the time because he was colorblind. And I just like never brought up the fact that I was equally colorblind. So like James took all of the shit for it. You really stick up for family. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what I do. Anyways, what, let's talk about colorful hydrogen. Right. So green hydrogen. Green hydrogen is what we've been talking about. That's hydrogen produced through electrolysis through renewable energy. Unfortunately, this accounts for about 0.03% of all the hydrogen produced in 2020. And we all know that we're already producing a ton of hydrogen. So when we're talking about a tiny amount of it, like it's, it's very meaningful. Right. The majority of hydrogen produced today, 59%, comes from steam reformation of natural gas a process that produces about 6 tons of CO2 per ton of hydrogen. This is what's known as grey hydrogen. Blue hydrogen attempts to address this with carbon capture tech, cutting it down to just 1.5 tons. This almost doubles the production cost, however, so blue hydrogen only accounts for 0.7% of global production. So, why do we make so little green hydrogen? I'm guessing it's because it's not economical or profitable? Also, why wasn't your question about like black hydrogen if we're, if we're going with this theme of like you blending in because unlike you i took science in public schools andy <laughs> sorry i am a failure so that question really has two parts i brought up that statistic because it's a pretty common one in the alternative energy debate and i thought it was worth talking about uh, when you look at it more closely that statistic is really more about how much we rely on fossil fuels rather than hydrogen being unaffordable The vast majority of hydrogen produced today is used in the production of ammonia fertilizer and in hydrocracking, a process that's part of petroleum refining. About 90% of it is produced adjacent to where it's used, in other words as an intermediate rather than an end product, and 41% of it is produced as a byproduct of another industrial process. The long and short of this really is not that green hydrogen is prohibitively expensive, just that we're hugely reliant on petroleum at the moment and hydrogen is involved in its processing. So it's like an ingredient of the petroleum refining process. It's like basically like the Irish moss of like a homebrew, but like for industrial chemical refining. Right. So the other part of this is how expensive is it? Well, lucky for us, Popular Mechanics published a handy chart back in 2006 that gives us some estimations in dollars per gas. The other part of this is how expensive is it? Well, lucky for us, Popular Mechanics published a handy chart back in 2006 that gives us some estimations in dollars per gallon of gas equivalent. For reference, a gallon of gas back in November 2006 was about 220. Were you alive in 2006? Yep, I was five. Anyway, uh, that. So you were driving a lot, is what you're saying? Yeah. 
Yeah, but you know, I was driving. I was driving too Just much. Cruising. So a lot of my paycheck went that way. <laughs> that amount of energy and hydrogen produced from natural gas was about three dollars. Three dollars also for hydrogen from wind power. One dollar for hydrogen from coal, and nine fifty for hydrogen from solar. It doesn't make sense to produce hydrogen from coal, but that's just to get an idea of the relative costs. But a lot has changed since 2006. Yeah, you're not kidding. Fewer low-rise genes and more Nazis on social media. I mean, we didn't want to free Britney yet, other than, like, from low-rise genes. I swear, I graduated high school, <laughs> and Amy shimmied in the line and just took an extra diploma. I don't even know if it has name on it. So, like, seriously, though, at graduation... Our history teacher was there and what he actually said to me is, are you supposed to be there? And after he said, are you supposed to be there? He said, you know what? You're either going to do great things in your life or you're going to go to prison for terrorism. And honestly, there's still time for both. Right. So aside from all those historic <laughs> events. Ellie's um, just dying right now. <laughs> it's not going to be me. It's hilarious. You know, it's always a black guy, but I'm willing to take one for you, buddy. That's why I'm laughing, friend. <laughs> what a sucker. <laughs> so, aside from all those historic events, the cost of renewables also fell fast. Between 2010 and 2020, the cost of wind energy prices have fallen on average by 70%, the cost of solar by 89%, and in 2018, the average cost of renewable energy fell below the cost of coal, according to the US Information Energy Administration. The falling cost of renewable energy ultimately mean that green hydrogen becomes more viable, especially for those in specialized industries or looking to export energy. There's also other factors that make hydrogen an attractive alternative in the coming years. Let's get our prepper hats on for a second. Already got it. <laughs> Always. Nice and shiny. It's made of tin. It's perfect. It's tin foil. Keep out those radio waves. Someone's got to do it. <laughs> So, for one, it might be far less vulnerable to disruption. Like my tin hat. Producing electrolytic hydrogen is a simple process that can be done from almost anywhere, with, in a pinch, widely available equipment. The US is also highly reliant on its system of high-voltage transmission lines. Which are, you know, notoriously in great shape, much like, you know, the rest of our infrastructure. Just ask Pittsburgh. I'm thinking of my home state of Texas. Winters are getting harsh down there. They're not ready. They don't know. Right, so I think it's very possible in some situations, like during times of war, for example. Or civil war. That hydrogen moving over long distances in trucks or trains might be reliable and safer than maintaining transmission lines to move energy from source to consumer. Those trucker unions got to you first, didn't they? You would not believe what they offered me. Another advantage... Was it a ticket to, uh, was it a ticket to Ottawa? Yeah. Said <laughs> <laughs> so I can ride along. I would do it just to pull the truck horn. If I always yeah. wanted to do it. You'd be like Pee Wee Herman, just riding along. Large Marge sent you. Have you seen that movie? <laughs> <laughs> I know. All right. I'm up to like six movies. I mean, I saw it when I was like eight. But yeah, I've seen like six movies. That was that was my formative years. And then my teenage years, I made it to iRobot. And then, I don't know. I don't know from then. I guess RoboCop. I like binged on it. RoboCop and Die Hard. And I was like, all right, I've seen everything. I've, I've covered all of my bases of diversity. Covered the classics. You could uh, can watch the Tremors. There's like nine of them. That's a good binge. Oh, I've seen Leprechaun. Is that like the same thing? Like the Leprechaun series? I don't think so. Tremors is like with the underground worm. 
Yeah, <laughs> you would actually you would actually like Tremors actually, and I you have yeah good good call, Matt. Sick. All right, so I have a, a movie list now. So I don't know how I got homework here, but here it's, we are. It's just Tremors one, like one through nine or That's 11. All. Just like 14 hours of TV. It's fine. So another advantage of green hydrogen might be its role in a water economy. Hydrogen is passed through a fuel cell wherever it's consumed and yields distilled water as a byproduct. The economies of this, being able to ship energy and water without the weight of that pesky oxygen, might make hydrogen a much more economically viable solution in water-stressed areas. The last factor I'm going to talk about quickly is the rare metals involved in batteries and fuel cells. This is where there seems to be significant advantages. Hydrogen fuel cells need a platinum catalyst to function. A fuel cell today, appropriate for pairing car, uses about 50 grams of platinum, and that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, to put that in terms that regular people who don't know how much that is could understand. Because this is America. Yeah, it's like two AA batteries worth of platinum. Or like 50 grams of nitroglycerin, which, you know, reasons. So we're going to prison. Listen, I warned you, like, five minutes ago, you knew what you signed up for. Right, I'm going to see if a robot will read this for me instead. This is not Matt, <laughs> this is, for the record. No. Anyway, that 50 grams is probably going to change. In 2019, Bosch announced a new hydrogen fuel cell collaboration with the Swedish battery company PowerCell. The new hydrogen fuel cell will, apparently, only require between 3 and 7 grams of platinum. Or 3 to 7 grams of nitroglycerin, if you need a tool to measure it from. A handy comparison. Andy. They're, they're also not interchangeable. Don't listen to Andy. No. This is Matt's episode. <laughs> Put them in all of the batteries and like just see what happens. N- nope. Not happening. It's happen- called a monkey wrench. I think high school chemistry would do you good. No. Anyway, so 50 grams to 3 to 7 grams. That's like a big jump, especially considering the sharply rising cost and human rights abuses involved in the extraction and refining of lithium nickel, and especially cobalt, needed for traditional lithium-ion batteries. Solid-state batteries may provide a solution to this by requiring much less materials, but that technology is still a way off. And I mean, we're talking about like Swedish companies, so like to get back to my example, they're going to make us build them ourselves, so, you know, why not swap out some ingredients? Custom. Can charge a premium. I'm just picturing how many extra pieces you would end up trying to build your own battery. No way that's safe. I'd, I'd have two batteries. Two. Think about it. Two for the price of one. <laughs> so much nitroglycerin. What could go wrong, Elliot? This is America. Hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Proles Almanac, and... And we're not the Poor Proles Almanac. You're right. We are tomorrow, today. And I'm Nash Flynn from Death and Friends. Tomorrow Today is our chance to talk to folks about cutting-edge research that helps us understand what tomorrow looks like, but today... We've got exciting guests. And we'll speculate wildly about what the future looks like. Will the ocean currents slow down in your lifetime, leaving temperate climates decimated? Will we go to Mars? Will we drown in climate-induced ocean floods filled with microplastics? Will new research rewrite the history our children read? Will the sun... Is this going to be another Doomer question? No. Tomorrow, today, wherever you get your podcasts and also on Instagram. So what we're going to talk about now is where I think the future of hydrogen technology is, and that's in cargo ships. Today, around 80% of all goods are carried by sea, and container ships carry 60% of those. 
In other words, half of all goods worldwide are carried on container ships. The International Council on Clean Transportation released a study in 2020 concluding that 99% of all trans-Pacific voyages made in 2015 could have been powered by hydrogen by replacing just 5% of cargo space with extra fuel storage or by adding an additional port of call. Staggeringly, 43% of the voyages would need no change in route or in fuel capacity area. And like, aren't half of those cargo ships just to like move gas and oil? And also on top of that, aren't they terribly inefficient and they move like, I don't know, it's something like 10 feet per gallon of like stored fuel that they're transporting or whatever. Or like one shack a gallon, you know, like, I don't know. I'm just saying we should, we should make shack metrics a thing. Yeah. So you're saying mess up the imperial system, which makes no sense at all. And then just make it dumber. First off, that is an attack on Shaq and I will not stand for it. Because one time Shaq could have run me over with his like Mack truck that he drive his Shaq truck, sorry, his Shaq truck that has like the Shaq logo on the front, like the Superman. And he didn't because I was a drunk idiot walking through Boston. So he's my hero. So we can't do that. Respect Shaq is what I'm saying. Kazam. You're saying Shaq refrained from running you over and now he's your hero? Yeah. Really, I owe my life to him. Really setting the bar low for your idols, but you know, that's okay. First off, who doesn't like Shaq? I'm just saying, like, come on. Shaq is fine. <laughs> right. So, summing it all up, one Shaq length per gallon is what we're using now? Yes. It's, it's, it is in the rule book now. That's what the, that's the term. It's a shack length. I'm just going to let you have this one. <laughs> right, one shack length a gallon on incredibly dirty fuel. The busiest ports today are in East and Southeast Asia, Northwest Europe, and to a lesser extent in the Persian Gulf and the Northeast US coast. Let's think about a ship running between Yokohama, Japan, and Rotterdam in the Netherlands, two of the busiest container ports in the world. On its 13,000 nautical mile journey, it will pass through the Straits of Malacca, the Suez Canal, as well as the Strait of Gibraltar. Now let's consider the alternative that will undoubtedly be arriving in our lifetimes, going through the Arctic instead. Currently, two shipping lanes exist, the Northern Sea Route along the northern coast of Russia, and the Northwest Passage through the Canadian Archipelago. At the moment, the ships that pass through the Northern Sea Route, that one being by far the more popular, are usually escorted by nuclear-powered icebreakers, it is, however, fast becoming a more important route and for good reason. That 13,000 nautical mile journey we talked about earlier, from East Asia to Northwest Europe, is cut down by almost half to only 7,000 miles with this route. The Northwest Passage is also gaining popularity as a viable sea route. In 2013, a Danish coal carrier departed Vancouver bound for Finland via the Northwest Passage. The ship saved $80,000 in fuel and carried 25% more cargo by traveling a route that was almost 2,500 nautical miles shorter. There's also just to say nothing on top of its usual route passing through the Panama Canal incurs like a huge toll on like industrial shipping ships of that size. So what you're saying is if we use the Panama Canal, my Amazon Prime is going to be cheaper, right? So climate change is good. Yeah, if we use the Northwest Passage, your Amazon package will get here one day earlier. 
Sweet. So I so like we'll get packages sooner. We're gonna save fuel. Maybe even you can like surf a polar bear <laughs> into its death. Like I, I, all I hear are good things. So Arctic cargo routes are undoubtedly going to become a reality of global trade. According to both the IPCC and the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, which is part of the UN, an ice-free summer in the Arctic will be here sometime between 2035 and 2050. So probably like three years from now, given how we're beating all of those estimates because we're number one here in America. We're number one. The geopolitical and economic importance of this area means that conservation efforts are going to be met with harsh resistance. The Arctic coastal states are the countries that really have the most say in what happens here. These are the United States via Alaska, Canada, Denmark via Greenland, Norway, and Russia. And considering the large oil and gas reserves in the Arctic Ocean, it's unlikely travel through this region and exploitation of its resources will be banned especially considering that by some estimates, 30% of the world's natural gas reserves are here. Yeah, so the US, Canada, and Russia aren't exactly countries I would say regularly put conservation above industry, but I don't know. I don't know much. (laughs) I mean, you know, if we're talking about it, we're saying, hey, all of this ice is melted. You know what we should do, guys? We've already made it this far. We may as well just take up this other 30% of the natural gas on the earth. What could go wrong? We've already melted the ice. Really, what could go wrong? So, more shipping in the Arctic poses a catastrophic danger to the climate and the delicate ecology of the polar region. One of the most prominent dangers is in the spilling of fuel oils, particularly heavy fuel oil, also known as bunker fuel. Heavy fuel oil is a byproduct of the petroleum refining process and produces extremely harmful emissions. Between 2015 and 2019, emissions of black carbon, essentially soot, in the Arctic region rose by 85% as the result of burning these heavy fuels. Due to its buoyancy in cold waters, it also has the potential to travel great distances underneath ice, which is one of the main reasons the IMO has been tightening regulations on it in recent years. In 2011, it banned the use of heavy fuel oil in the Antarctic, and in 2020 introduced a sulfur content cap. In 2020, the IMO also began drafting legislation to limit the use of HFOs in the Arctic. The environmental critics, however, argue that the loopholes allow too much for its extended use, only banning about 25% of HFO-carrying ships by 2024, when it would come into effect, and the remaining 75% only by 2029. That's not to say anything of diesel fuel, the far more prominent fuel in the region. On the 29th of May, 2020, the foundations under Fuel Storage Tank 5 at the Norilsk Tamy Energy Plant in Norilsk, Russia, collapsed into melted permafrost. Hold on, hold on. It, like, melted? Is that, like, a really casual way of saying, like, that climate change cartoon ate the town? Yeah. And so, long story short, 17,500 tons of diesel made its way into the nearby Adolican River, turning it red on its way towards the Arctic Ocean. Not the red they were trying to bring back. I mean, I know I know we knew the polar bear was like on its last days and, you know, if we're fucked anyway, we may as well give them like a nice front stage seat to the new Cold War showdown. But like also maybe not that way. Right. I don't know if like choking on diesel fuel is a nice end to the polar bear. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to make a good pun out of that, but I can't. I just can't. So sad. Seems wrong. Yeah. Too sad. Sorry. 
even for me. So getting down to it, if we're going to protect the ecology around these new shipping lanes, a new fuel economy in the region is going to become essential. Now comes the good news. Enter Iceland. In 1999, the Icelandic government and corporate partners introduced the Hydrogen Project, an energy transition plan involving the expansion of renewable energy production and the piloting of various hydrogen technologies such as fuel cell buses. Hawaii had a similar program beginning in the early 2000s to pilot hydrogen power for transportation in the state. While popular, both programs struggled to gain traction. Roxana Beke Mohammadi, director of the Western States Hydrogen Alliance, sums up the situation well, arguing that while battery-powered electric vehicles can substitute for gasoline cars, lithium-ion batteries struggle in heavy lift capacities, like aviation, busing, and trucking. This is largely due to what we talked about earlier with the energy density of these two sources. Yeah, and just to sum it up one more time, uh, one is too light. Hydrogen is too light without being pressurized, leading to Hindenburg situations. And the other is too fat to fly, like Andy's last Peking duck. Yeah, and then it became Peking dinner. Delicious. So while hydrogen tech in Iceland didn't catch on, the renewables program did. Today, three quarters of the country's electricity needs are met by hydropower plants, and another quarter met by geothermal. Iceland is poised to become an energy exporter in the near future, and is ideally situated in the northern Atlantic to supply hydrogen fuel for crossing Arctic shipping lanes. Yeah, I love the idea of geothermal. Like, it's something we haven't covered yet on the podcast, but it's such a cool technology in terms of being able to just literally take the ambient temperature of the Earth to regulate the temperatures of everything else. Like it just, it seems like it makes so much sense. And uh, it's something I I would love to talk about further, you know, in terms of housing, greenhouses and all sorts of cool shit we could do with it. Were we going to have like a green building Twitch stream? At some point we will. Uh, That's, that's a part of my master plan, as well as talking about geothermal energy at some point in the future, because I want to know more about it, so I'm just going to get some expert to come on and tell me, and I get to nod and smile and learn a bunch, and they think they're getting famous, and I think I'm learning a lot, so that's that's usually how I operate. It's called symbiosis. Or something. So speaking of geothermal, Hawaii also benefits from a strong renewables program, aiming to meet 70% of the state's energy needs with local renewables by 2030, and fulfilling all electricity needs in the state by 2045. Hawaii has the potential to become an energy exporter and is also well-positioned on shipping routes between Southeast Asia and the west coast of North and South America. So let's get back to the Arctic. Remember the list of Arctic coastal countries? Well, the US has been uncomfortable with its lack of influence in the region for some time. For one, Russia exercises significant control through industry and the presence of some 18 military bases compared to the U.S.'s 10, Canada's 4, and Norway's 1. And we know we can't let that stay. No, we can't. Not in my America. (laughs) Not in my American North Pole. Additionally, the U.S. and Canada have clashed in the past over the classification of the Northwest Passage running through the Canadian archipelago. The U.S. argues that this should be treated as an international shipping lane, similar to the Danish archipelago, whereas Canada argues that it should be treated more like the Suez or Panama Canals, but they can charge tolls in order to pay for safety and policing infrastructure in the far north. This would also mean that Canada could choose which ships get to pass through, and which would need to take the long way around. Basically, America loves a free market until they can't own the market. 
Canada. <laughs> Diet America, same BS, but skinny, great taste. I don't know. Ask Ottawa and Matt when he goes on his trucker ride. Matt, how is oh it? Oh my God. How was Ottawa, Matt? <laughs> Ottawa in Please January. tell us more. Ugh. I want to know all about their truckers and the fact that they were so multiracial and all those other good things that they keep trying to say. Yeah. I've really not been trying to look that direction. <laughs> You're forgetting that trip? It's not on your passport? No, no. Oh, I used my secret one, so. Um, there you go. The U.S. aims to expand their influence in the region. This was one of the reasons behind the Trump administration's ill-fated attempt to buy Greenland from the Danes back in 2019. The answer to this dilemma for the U.S. might lie on the windswept shores of Alaska. Anchorage is already a global transportation hub for air cargo, but the state also has massive potential for offshore wind generation, estimated at 11 times that of Massachusetts, the next state in offshore wind potential. Its underutilization, however, is at least partially due to the electricity it generates being far too remote to build the proper transport infrastructure for. Hydrogen fuels don't face the same problem, as they can be produced and purchased pretty much on-site. Falling costs of hydrogen fuel, as well as a ban on heavy fuel and distillate fuel oils in the Arctic, would make Alaska perhaps the most important geopolitical location of the next century, and monopolizing on this is a smart move for any future president interested in achieving both climate and geopolitical goals. Of course, a plot by the Greenpeace Industrial Complex. <laughs> Hell yeah. Gotta get that green money. So hydrogen as a resource is unique in many respects, not the least of which is due to the fact that it's everywhere. No other resource in the universe is as abundant, and due to this fact, is unique compared to our historical sources of fuel. Usually, the initial costs of fuel, be they wood, coal, oil, or gas, are first costly to extract, get cheaper as technology and methods improve, and then become more expensive as reserves are exhausted. Hydrogen, on the other hand, will likely reach no final bottleneck, especially as new technologies such as iron pyrolysis catalysts replace the platinum ones found today. Hydrogen is only going to get cheaper. Additionally, it's more accessible than ever to those outside established capital and infrastructure to produce, use, and maybe most importantly, share. Economist Jeremy Rifkin, in his book The Hydrogen Economy, draws important links between our progression through energy sources and modes of communication. As each source becomes more energy-dense and less carbonous, so has the complexity and efficiency of our communication. Coal in the telegraph, oil in the radio, and finally hydrogen in the World Wide Web. The internet, too, allowed each of its users to share as much as they consume. Yeah, tell that to Napster. So it's hard to imagine the world today without the internet because it's changed the world so much. It's integrated itself into so many aspects of daily life. A hydrogen economy may do the same. So now the question is, how can we design institutional frameworks today that allow us to bring about a democratic and sustainable existence? It's The American military? The American military. That's the answer. Always the answer. <laughs> it's conceivable that hydrogen may eventually cost next to nothing to produce. How do we ensure access to it becomes a human right? Harvesting renewables has impacts on the surrounding people and environment. Yeah, fuck a Tennessee Valley Authority. So how do we harvest this energy <laughs> in ways that protect, protect the local ecology, including its people? I'm pretty sure the answer to that is our future president, Pete Ratface Buttigieg. I hate all your suggestions this episode, I think. 
I don't know what you have against Mayo Pete 2024. Hype man Think for the about white it. man. Rat man is the new Batman. Come on. He's going to save us, but he's really just a rich kid. Yeah. I mean, I guess he's not, but that's... I don't know what you just said, but it sounded like a recipe for egg salad. Did you say mayo and what? Mayo Pete. Me? I didn't say anything about mayo. Mayo Pete. Oh, oh. yeah. Mayo Pete. Because he was a mayor and then he's pasty, so we call him mayo. Come on, Elliot. You got mayo next door. You should be used to this. That's very That's very clever. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. Clever. Anyway, so that's it for this episode on hydrogen power. Uh, I'm Matt. And I'm, go ahead, Elliot. I'm Elliot. Fuck that up. <laughs> I don't know how to say my name in order. It's because um, you wanted to save the best for last. I get it. Yeah, that that's absolutely it. Well, I was trying to cut you off, so I was saying... God damn it, you beat me. <laughs> um, so anyways, yeah, so this is the first of a series that we're going to be kind of doing some some stuff a little differently where we'll be digging into the history of various subject matters in a way that helps explain the world we live in today and maybe look at what that world could look like in the future based on these experiences and this history and our understanding of that history. So we're going to be doing, I think, like eight of these episodes. So it's something a little bit outside of the scope of what we've traditionally covered. But I think it's really interesting, and Matt did a great job doing this research, and I'm looking forward to the next one we do. And my name is Andy, and I guess this is still the Poor Pearls Almanac, for now, sponsored by Spotify and Apple, obviously, not Napster. Are we sponsored? If we say it, does it make it true? We gotta get that Napster money. Gotta get that nap money. It's also what my six-year-old says. <laughs> get that nap money. Come on. No, nothing. Okay, fine. I'll just I'll just be out here in silence all alone, abandoned by my team. I thought we were trying to end uh, the episode. You want me to keep talking? Now I don't. Keep vamping. All right, we're done. We're done here. Ba, Goodbye. Ba, ba, ba.